Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, the component costs of capital. This is definitely a mathy lecture, and the best thing you can do for yourself is to just stick to the formulas and don't ask a lot of why questions, not at this uh, late, this early hour. But the formulas themselves are pretty straightforward. In one case, oddly enough, the, there are several different formulas you would use for different situations. But I'll get to that in a minute here. First, quick look at the numbers. And if we, oh, yeah, there we go. It, it was an odd day. It was just a grouchy day. The Dow was up. Well, it's, it's still got an hour. But the Dow has been up a little bit, about a quarter of a percent. But the S&P 500 was down, is down about a third of a percent, and the Nasdaq's taking a whacking at 1.17%. So there, the news seems to be mildly favorable for the huge, ginormous companies, but from there it kind of gets a little bit uglier. If we go over here, oil down a little bit. It seems to want now to float around 80 to 82. And of course, when the price of oil just dropped through the floor, gas prices went down a little bit. And now that oil is going up in price, well, don't be surprised if we see $4 a gallon out of that. Now, it's kind of strange. Uh, gold went all over the place today. It, it has crossed a sort of a psychological barrier at $2,000 an ounce, and we're on the north side of that now. The gold uh, bugs think that there's some chance that we'll have the zombie apocalypse coming. And it's a really mixed bag right now. Let me come over here real quick to the uh, bonds. Now, the benchmark 10-year is down, yield down uh, about four, uh, about five basis points right there, see it? Uh, but uh, that, of course, means yield down, price up. That means that investors are putting some funds into bonds. Well, that would be from selling out of equities a little bit and using the funds to move them in, uh, to move into bonds. This is certainly not any kind of flight to quality kind of movement, but it is uh, readjusting portfolios a little more away from stocks and a little more towards safer uh, harbors in the bond market. And for what that's worth, it's, uh, we do have some signals of recessionary pressures that are building. The jobs numbers were very weak that came out yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah. And uh, that's actually bad news and good news. The bad news is jobs are, uh, new jobs are not as uh, plentiful. The good news though is that this kind of data may spook the Federal Reserve into laying off the interest rate increases. 
It's been jacking up interest rates to cool off the inflation. But when the jobs market starts to show this kind of recessionary trend, that may be enough to tell the Fed it's time to quit. That would be good news for the markets, higher, price, higher interest rates, lower prices and all that. So we may, that, that's the upside of it. Now if you want to come over here, uh, just as another quick look, the euro against the dollar, it's been playing around the dollar nine mark. One, one euro equals uh, a dollar, it's bought for a dollar nine. Now there are a, a lot of sentiment that it's going to, the dollar's going to depreciate more. In other words, the, it's going to cost more dollars to buy a euro. Some are talking about $1.12, $1.15 for a euro. That would be a dramatic decrease in the uh, depreciation of the, uh, of the dollar. It doesn't seem to like this $1.09. It just kind of bounces around it. Show you on the chart here. If you look at the one day, uh, at let's say the one month, do you see that it's been progressively spiking? That's the dollar depreciating. It's costing more dollars to buy a euro, more dollars to buy a euro. But it's had kind of a, a cyclical, it gets up there to a dollar eight, dollar nine, and then it gets spooked away. And as you can see, it punched a dollar nine sixty three. Uh, a few days ago, and that scared it off, and it's then now it's going back down toward that dollar nine again. Hard to say, uh, but if the Fed does not increase interest rates anymore, and the Europeans do, that would cause the dollar to depreciate more. But I don't know if the Europeans are in much of a mood to jack their interest rates up either. Now, if you look over here at uh, the dollar against the British pound, you see the same thing. The dollar has been, uh, has been uh, appreciating through the day today. In other words, it's costing fewer dollars to buy a British pound as the day has gone along. So that same pattern over here on the euro, where the euro has been falling down, of where the euro has been devaluing, depreciating against the dollar, is still in play. Now the yen is weird because they price the yen opposite to the way they price other currencies, simply because uh, yen is worth a tiny amount of a dollar. So they make it so that you're looking at how many dollars, uh, how many yen it costs to buy a dollar in this one. This one, interestingly enough, it's the opposite of what you see on the other ones. The yen is getting stronger against the dollar. This is USD against JPY, whereas all the others are the euro against the USD, GPI, euro, the GPD, GBP against the dollar. It's confusing, and I sometimes get myself all wound around in uh, my international finance class, but I'll keep talking about this as the days go along. You'll get used to it. Now, London, they bounced around a lot, but it finished up only about a third of a percent, so there wasn't anything spectacular over uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. The Nikkei, those 225 stocks of the Nikkei 225 just kept going down all through the day. Uh, more and more grouchiness, I would say, was going in by the time it was over. The Nikkei was down about 1.7%. That's not... 
that's that's a pretty that's a not a horrible drop, but that's enough to get their, get everyone's notice. So there we are. Some messages are saying that we are getting coming toward a recession. Others are not. I will show you one thing here, though. Let me show you the treasury yield curve real quick here. Where we are, where we stand right now. Uh, let me take uh, the through the entire from the beginning of the year, just so you can get all the data. Now, as you can see, if you look, see how interest rates, these yields are beginning to drop down as the expectation is that the Fed is not going to push out interest rates up anymore. This is taking some of the pressure off this yield curve. You see how it's beginning to drop across the way? It's still inverted, nasty inversion there, but it's not as bad as it was. So. We've got some, the market, some expectation that interest rates are not going to go up anymore and may, in fact, go down a little bit over the coming weeks and months. Good news for all of us. In lower interest rates, that will help the economy stay out of a recession. Now, over here, I'm going to pull up an Excel sheet. The thing about what I'm doing today is that a lot of it, it's, it's almost too basic. The, the, arith the, the arithmetic is almost too basic to do in Excel. It's more calculatory, calculatory kind of stuff. But So you'll see me do these on the calculator and I'll probably make some, uh, I'll key in some numbers wrong and I'll get everyone upset. But, to start this off, the weighted average cost of capital, the WAC, is the weight of debt times the after-tax cost of debt plus the weight of equity <coughs> times the cost of equity. This isn't all that hard at first. It looks a little like, what the hell do I do? And what, what, why are we doing all this? But the key is that we need the after-tax cost of debt to a company. And we also need the, ex at the cost of equity to a company. Now here's where the problem comes in a little bit because there are actually th several different kinds of equity. There is the cost of preferred stock, and then there is also the cost of existing common stock, and then finally there's the cost of issuing new common stock. New common stock is actually more expensive than existing common stock. Now the book uses a word, that, uh, a term that is unfortunate, but it's difficult to find another word for it. Think of this R sub S as, for lack of a better term, the cost of the retained earnings the company has. Those returned earnings, those, rather, those retained earnings constitute a cost. Now the first one, which is pretty easy, the cost of debt, R sub D.
and then the after tax would be one minus the tax rate because the interest is tax deductible. But the first trough just use the coupon on the riskiest or last debt the company issued. I mean, that's the cost. RBN Junior Debt carries a coupon of eight percent. All we do is say the cost of debt to the company is 8% times 1 minus the tax rate, which now is 0.21. This is after taxes. Coupon, 1 minus the T. That's all there would be to it. Unfortunately, that's not good enough. I get that cranked up here. 8% times 0 0.79. 6.32%. But that's not going to be good enough. Because the market said 8% was what they required, what lenders required at the time that debt was issued. The yield to maturity is what the market currently thinks debt should pay for this company. RBN was fine and the lenders were fine with 8% when that debt was issued. However, the price Remember last week or over the past few weeks, we've done bond calculations. Price goes down, yield goes up. Price goes up, yield goes down. The market is in a constant state of <clears throat> deciding what the next debt. If the company RBN went out there right now and borrowed, it would not borrow at 8%. It would borrow at the yield to maturity, what the market currently requires of debt. So we would have to look, instead of the coupon, we'd have to look at the yield to maturity. Let's say that right now, the yield to maturity on RBN debt, on this debt, this 8% debt, the actual YTM is 8.40%. So if the company goes out and borrows more money, it's going to pay 8.4%. So this means that the R sub D AT 
is not 8 percent times 1 minus 0.2 mi times 1 minus 0.21. It is 8.40 percent times 1 minus 0.21. So now, doing that again, we would do 8.4% times 0 0.79, 6.636%. That's the one that we would need to use is the yield to maturity on the debt. But other than that, that's how you find the cost of debt. It's not that hard. And on a test, I'd say, well, the yield to maturity is or something like that, and the tax rate is, so it's not hard to calculate the cost of after-tax cost of debt. The pain in the ass comes with the cost of equity. Before I do that, I do want to take a little bit of a digression here. Just a little digression. Suppose you've got a company that is 25% debt, its capital structure is 25% debt and 75% equity. That's its optimal capital structure. That's the lowest weighted average cost of capital is at 25% debt, 75% equity. Now, what do we do from here? Okay. I have to have some help here. You are the treasurer of my company. You have all the retained earnings. Now, I'm going to, there's more than this. You've got plenty more than this. But that's, how much is that? $60. $60. You, madam, are a lender. And no, I'm not giving out. I'm giving you that. Okay, we've had our capital planning and all this, and we have decided that we are going to take on this project that will cost $80. So I go to you and I say, okay, I need $80. Now you've got enough for that, but you say, no, fat boy, I'm not going to give you $80. Why not? Because you can, if we want to stay on our optimal capital structure, you can provide me with only 75% of the $80.
And then I have to go to you for the $20. Because 25% of $80 is $20. I can't just use retained earnings. I can't just use debt. I have to keep them in exactly the same balance that is my optimal capital structure. Otherwise, I no longer am at my optimal capital structure. If I took all of the 80 from you, that would make the company have too much equity. And if I took all of the money from you, that would mean the company would have more debt than was optimal. You follow the idea? Okay, I need my money back. <laughs> You're giving it back too easily. Yeah. Okay, here. So I want you to keep that in mind, and I'll emphasize this next week again. That come and also, if you didn't have enough for sixty dollars, what I have to do is I still need to maintain 75% equity, so I would have to go out and sell new common stock to get the rest of the $60. So if you had only 50, I need 60 of equity, so I would have to go out and sell $10 worth of common stock to get what I, the rest of it as equity. So I just keep that in the back of your mind that we do these weighted average cost of capital with the understanding that as new capital projects come in, we have to keep the balance of debt and equity in place. And that means sometimes we're going to have to borrow money that will cost us a higher interest rate. Sometimes uh, we'll have to sell common stock whatever, when the price is low, whatever. Okay, so we've got R sub D A T. That one wasn't too bad. Yield to maturity times one minus the tax rate. Nothing big about that. The more pain in the derriere comes with, so this is uh, R sub D equals the yield to maturity. Okay, right. Preferred stock isn't too bad. Now, last week I showed you some formulas for pricing common stock. We're going to turn those around. Look here. The cost of preferred, R sub P. Now, I had a formula last week. You remember that formula I gave you last week? Um, the price of preferred stock is that flat dividend over the cost, over the required return that investors have for preferred. Well, all I have to do is turn that around and say the cost of preferred is the dividend over the current price of preferred stock. That's all I do. RVB 
2.8% cumulative preferred par value $60 per share is currently priced at $52.50 per share. RVB 2.8% cumulative preferred par value $60 per share is currently priced at $52.50 per share. Now look at the formula. D over P, D over the price. Step one, calculate the dividend, which would be 0.028 times 60, the stated dividend times the par value. That's how you get the dividend for preferred. And if I do that, and I'm going to do that, I'm not going to try to do that in my head, I'm not stupid. 0.028 times 60. Well, do you see that the calculator turns off? What? Okay, anyway. 0.028 times 60. So this, uh, your dividend is a dollar. All right. Yeah, I guess so. That's a pretty decent dividend for preferred. A dollar sixty-eight. Okay, I got the dividend, and I was told the price. So step two, the required return to the cost of preferred stock is a dollar sixty-eight. The dividend divided by the current market price, fifty-two dollars and fifty cents. RCP equals 1.68 divided by the market price of $52. So I just take this number I got right here and divide it by 5250. 3.2%. That's all you do to get the cost of preferred. 3.2%. Obviously, these, these old formulas you want to keep close at hand. That's all you do to find the cost of preferred. That's all. Nothing difficult there. Got two to go into the abyss. Let me show you formula. The problem with common stock, the cost of common stock, is that there is not one formula. 
there's a there's a really exact there, well there's one way that is good for older stable constant growth of dividend companies but just for those kinds of companies last week I showed you a formula the price of common stock would equal the current intrinsic price value would be D1 over the market's expected return minus the growth rate. Old companies. Now remember the dividend D1. You have to take the current dividend and grow it one period. Now remember I told you I could give you the company just paid a dividend and you grow it one period. But if I said the company next year will pay a dividend, then you've already got the D1. Just remember that. But I can turn this formula around. A little bit of algebra here. And I can find that the cost of common stock to a company is going to be the dividend next period divided by the current price of the stock plus the growth rate. So I've got a formula. This would work only for a company that had constant growth dividends, but it's better than nothing. RVB just paid a dividend of a dollar seventy per share to its common stockholder. RVB just paid a dividend of $1.70 per share to its common stockholders. <coughs> the current, oh wait, and that dividend is expected to grow at 3% for the foreseeable future. RVB common is currently priced at $28.30 per share.
I'll let you write that down. Now that's a lot of words. And as I used to say when I taught math many, many years ago, a word question has too many words. You take the words out and just get the numbers into the formula. That's all you ever do. Okay. I'm going to need step one, the dividend one period out. Well, in this case, I know the current dividend, so I've got to grow up one period. So it would be D0 times 1 plus G, which would be, what was the $1.70? Times 1 plus 0 0.03. That'll get me the D1. That's step one, get D1. And if I do that, and the calculator has turned off again, uh, D1, what the hell was that? Um, come on. Uh, 1.70 times 1 plus 0 .03, 0.03. So the dividend next period is going to be $1.75. That's what I'll need. And then I'll take that $1.71.751 divided by the current price, which is $28.30. $28 30 cents plus the 0.03 growth rate. So I'll say divided by the $28.30 plus the growth rate. 9.187%. There's my holy grail for that one. The cost of my retained earnings, the cost of my current stockholders, is 9.187%. Stay frosty when you do these. Just crank through the formula. Now here is the issue with common stock. Not all companies have a constant growth rate dividend. They just don't. Some don't even have a dividend. What the hell do we do there? And some have a dividend that's all over the place. So this formula here for finding the cost of common equity, the cost of retained earnings, is of limited use. 
It's exact, but it is of limited use. It's sort of like Newtonian physics is great and works well until you get near a black hole or a neutron star. So we have to have another way to do the cost of common equity, the cost of retained earnings. Well, there are two other ways. One of them is, it looks almost like a cheater's way of doing it. This is method one. Call it method A. Method B use the cap M. Remember I showed you that the expected return to a stock is going to be the risk-free rate plus the beta of the stock times the expected return to the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate. That's the cap M. That's an RS. That's the cost of equity. It's the expected return the stockholders uh, have and so that's the cost of the equity to the company. We could just pour it in like that. So I could do a one with RVB. We could get, if it didn't have dividends or anything like that, we could still, let's say RVB has a beta of 1.20. The current expected return to the market is 10.5% And the risk-free rate right now, we look at T-bills and say, well, what are they paying? Is 3.8%. Well, that's all the information we need. So we could do this, use the cap M. And get it. We would have three point. What did I say? Eight zero percent plus one point two zero times what? Ten point five percent minus three point eight percent. I mean, this will get it. You might even be thinking, well, why would I use that more complicated formula if I could use the cap M? Eh. Actually, you'd probably try, if you could use the first one, then you'd use that one and also look at the, what came out of cap M, and maybe take the average of the two. But in this case, what do I got, what have I got here? 3.8 plus, open parenthesis, 10.5 oh, 10.5 minus 
3.8. Really? Oh, I forgot to put in the beta. Duh. Second enter. I was going to say, why did that come out to be that? Okay, let's insert 1.2 times. Okay. 1.84%. Now the problem with the cap M here, and I mentioned that when we were going through the capital asset pricing model, what if the company doesn't have a beta? I mean, if it's just going public, it doesn't have a beta yet. And you saw, so I, I, I thought I showed you a couple of companies that they haven't had enough data to actually be able to calculate the beta. In a case like that, you still want to use the cap M, you would go and look at the industry that this company is in and take the average of the betas of companies like it. We call that comps or comparables. Comps are done in all kinds of finance. I mean, comps in real estate, you figure out the price of a house by uh, taking an average of comps, comp comparable properties that have just sold. I mean, comps are very common. So if you don't have a beta for the company, you just get an industry average beta. Even Standard Poor's 500, that global net advantage I showed you, you can actually find comparable beta, you find the industry of a company, and then you say, what's the average beta in that industry? So it's not that bad to calculate you got to get your expected return in the market and your risk-free rate. But that's another way to do it, to get the cost of common stock, the cost of retained earnings. But there's even a third way to do it. And truth be told, if I'm not mistaken, this is actually the most popular way out there. It, it works like this. And again, it's a comp, it's like it's you're using comps to do it. RVB. Is in an industry. Where the Average cost of debt is 6.5%, and the average cost of equity. is 17.2%. This is a popular way, what I'm going to show you here. It's called the equity premium. 
it's popular because you can get this data right off S&P 500, S&P Global Net Advantage, and other resources too. Here's how it works. The industry, this is the industry. The equity premium in this industry is the cost of debt, R sub D, <coughs> I'll put a little bar over that, the average cost of debt, <coughs> R sub D, uh, I'm sorry, R sub S, minus the average cost of debt, R sub D. So in this industry, the Typical equity premium would be the cost of equity over the cost of debt would be 17.2% minus 6.5%. So in this industry, the cost of retained earnings is usually about 17 point. Uh, 2% minus 6.5% or 10.7%. Okay, how do we use that? RVB just issued some debt. The cost of debt for RVB was 6.9%. That's what the coupon, the, the lender said, we want a coupon of 6.9%. This is what's just happened. Okay, that would mean that the cost of equity for RVB would be its cost of debt plus this industry average equity premium. The average equity premium. So in this case, the cost of debt to RVB, uh, the cost of stock, common stock to RVB would simply be its cost of debt plus this industry average equity premium, which is 10.7%. which would be 17.6%. That would be, I mean, it's kind of like a brute force approach, but it's very popular. As a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, you can even find equity premiums by industry. In other words, how much equity typically costs over debt for a number of industries. So it's not that unusual to have uh, to use this method. It's in a way, it's not as precise as the first or the second method. But again, it's pretty straightforward and easy, and it is quite popular out there in the real world to do that. Those are the three methods: the constant growth dividend method for older stable growth companies, 
the CAPM method if you have a beta or you can get a, an industry average beta. And then this equity premium method. Those are the three different methods out there that are floating around. But one way or the other, I want you to notice something and it's very evident in the first one, the, that constant growth of equity. You also see it in the cost of preferred. Do you see how as the price of the stock, the market price goes down, the cost of equity goes up. If the price of the stock goes up, the cost of equity goes down. Do you see it? The P, the market price is always the denominator. Well, that's an interesting thing right there because a lot of companies, they, I, this was especially true when I was consulting. I'd say, well, our stock price is going down. And they'd say, well, so what? We don't care. Who, who would care about that? Well, what it's doing is it's creating a fever in the company. The cost of equity is going up as that price falls. That is incentive for the company to try to keep the price from going down. If you think about a current example like Tesla, where the price of the stock collapsed by what? Two thirds or something like that? That means that just over a period of a few days, the cost, of, the cost of equity went through the roof and therefore the weighted average cost of capital for the company went through the roof. The market came to bear on the company. The same is true of other companies where their price just drops to the floor just immediately the weighted average cost of capital of the company has gone through the roof as a result. But there's another thing, and you can see it there in that the constant growth model the best. Do you see that as a company grows faster, its cost of equity increases? See that plus G there on the end? And even in the D1, 1 plus G, Growth actually creates higher equity costs for a company. That's why it's not wonderful for a company to grow and grow and grow. You want it to slow down because if it just keeps that up, its cost of equity just keeps getting worse and worse. And that's because you've created the, the company has created an expectation of growth. And when it doesn't achieve it, all of the shareholders start selling that stock fast. And of course, that drops the price, which increases the cost of equity. So there is, yeah, there's something to growth. I mean, you, madam, are my daughter. When, I, when you were six years old, well, ha-ha, her shoe size has gone from a four to a five. Oh, isn't that wonderful? When she was 12 and her shoe size went from a 10 to a 14, you know, damn, are we going to use you for the rowboat? I, that's the whole point is, and then it stopped growing. We got to take you to the doctor. Something's wrong. It stopped growing. You see the idea there? It's kind of a complicated thing, but growth is great until it gets to be too much. Uh, and price going down 
is the company does well, so what? We're still operating, you know, the lights are on and all. But it's creating a fever in the company, a slow burn by that stock price doing that. So, now, the cost of new equity. I'll give you, I'll give you, here, here it is. You see, if a company's stock is selling at a price of $50, D1 over 50 plus G. But if you go out and sell new equity, you're not going to get $50 a share. The brokers that sell it are going to extract a float. You get stated as a percentage, 8%. Oh. P, that P in the denominator, that price, isn't going to be 50 to us. It's going to be uh, 50 times 1 minus 0.08, or 46. So the cost of new equity has that little nasty kicker in it. So when I talk about the cost of new equity, a simple way of putting it would be that it's D1 over the price times 1 minus the float as a percent plus G. Now, if it's stated as a dollar, all you do is like 50 minus $4. If it's stated as a percent, you do 50 times 1 minus 0 0.08. <coughs> Give you an example of it. Okay, this is how private equity ruins companies. Many years ago when I was a consultant and I was working with rainmakers, we had, the, uh, we had an invitation to speak with a fellow who was, um, he, he had a trailer in the back lot of the Atlanta airport. Back then, there weren't these corridors and all that. You could walk around, drive around the tarmac and all that. But um, he was in a trailer and we went to meet him, the two young men and I, and he told us his story. He had all these stacks of, of paper bound up and books all over this mess of a trailer he had back there. And his idea was he was going to acquire play jets from a bankrupt airline, and he was going to take out the seats, and he was going to turn it into a service that would take packages around the country. Packages from the United States Postal Service, from DHL, from UPS. It was very radical at the time. He would be a third party just a delivery service from one airport to another. You bring it to me at let's say um, Dallas, Fort Worth, and I would uh, fly, uh, have it on one of my planes that was going into the hub at O'Hare, that kind of thing. He wanted, and he had all of the FAA approvals to do this. That was what all this paperwork was about. And he needed $5 million. We listened to his story for an hour or so. Very strange, old, kind of older man, white hair, just these fierce blue eyes, smoked a terrible cigar, and um, 
he wanted $5 million. And we said, we can do this. And uh, we said, it'll take us a week to get $7 million together for you, and then you'll have your money. And he said, no, no, it was $5 million. He said, yeah, $7 million. You get five, we get two. Oh, he just pissed himself raw, threw us out. So we had it all planned. We had parked a well away from him. And we just thanked him and walked out. And one of, one of the two boys waited behind so, he could catch, so this guy could catch up with him. And he said, please, stop, stop. We got it. We'll work on it. And so, you know, we played the game. And finally, we said, okay, $6.5 That's the last we do. And he, he took it. Sure. So that was the deal. Uh, you see the float? He was going to get $5 billion. $5 million was what he was going to get to do this. But he was on the hook. We were the owners. He was owed us. His total owner's equity had gone up to $6.5 million. That's float from hell. That's how private equity works. They'll get you your money, but they'll take such a massive stake, you won't get what you will be on the hook for as far as owner, owner's equity goes is a lot more than what you, uh, what you actually have to work with. And that's why most of these companies that do this, they fall apart after a couple of years. The cost of equity is through the frickin' roof on them. And they just, eventually they buckle under the strain. But that's okay for the private equity because it's already got its money and it was the ones who owned the debt anyway. So to seize the assets, liquidate them, and move on with our lives to the next meal. But that's that. Now let me show you in Excel a simple kind of example of how you do this in practice. Okay. What I'm going to do in Excel is I'm going to put type of type of capital, the component. And I'm going to say the market value. Now we always want to look at market values. And then the next thing we're going to do is say cost. And then we're going to get the weight. So let's do debt. Let's say that R sub D is 5.9, uh, well, 5.8 percent. Oh, market value. I'm sorry. Let's say they have. $8 million in market value of debt. And the cost of the debt, let's say 6.8% times 1 minus the tax rate. Remember, you have to do after tax cost. Let's say that their preferred stock 
they have two million of that market price. In other words, number of shares times the market price per share. Let's say it's two million dollars, <coughs> and the cost of that, let's say, is oh five point one percent. Now, common stock. Let's say that they have their market cap right now is, let's say, $30 million. And the cost of that is, let's say, 14.8%. Should that uh, equals? Okay, so now, total. Just add these up. So the total market value of the company is $40 million. Now I want to get the weights. The weight of the debt will be eight million divided by the total. I'll make that an absolute reference. And I'll just take them down the line. Okay, ready? Now the weighted average cost of capital. I don't know if you've seen this yet. <coughs> it would be this times this plus this times this plus this times this. Just whack. Now there's no new in here because this is just, they're not trying to raise new capital. So the way you do this equals some product. And you say this column, comma, this column, cost column, weight column, and then there's a weighted average cost of capital right there, 12.43%. At the end, this isn't such a hard thing. This last step is just an Excel trick. Now, how would I do this on an exam or a quiz? I'd have you find the cost of each and then find the whack. And I would not make it a hard, I mean, you can make this a bitch of an exercise. And I would try not to do it that bad to you. But as you can see, at the end, once you've got the cost of each component, you just take the weights times the cost of each component and you get your whack your weighted average cost of capital. Doesn't look, it, it, in its pieces, this isn't too bad, but in its cumulative, it can, it can break your will to live. <coughs> Excuse me. 
and it's a major thing. So on an exam, you've got to figure that I'm not going to make it a monster because then you wouldn't have time for other questions. But in the homework, maybe a quiz, yeah. So you'll have a quiz on Wednesday of next week and on Wednesday, and this will be kind of what it'll be about.